Wednesday, September 1st, 2021. This is Messiah Matters number 356. I, like Rob, have nothing to say right now. My name is Caleb Hegg. I, unlike Caleb, have something to say. Oh, what's Looking that? Looking forward to the fall feast. Oh, yes. The fall quarter at uh, Toro Resource Institute. And this uh, Thursday and Friday, the 2nd and 3rd of September, I'm participating in the, uh, what is it, Institute for Advanced Studies at Princeton's virtual conference on medieval manuscripts. My name's Rob Van Hoff. You know, you got a lot to say here, buddy. But you got to, you got to. I forgot to say my name. You got to finish. I didn't do it. Yes. You know, I got to go to school for that, I guess. So it's weird. Uh, we have people in the chat room saying that uh, the that there is an error on our video. And I wonder why that is. Let's just check our settings real quick. Well, if we have to start it over, then I can try again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. So um, I want to make sure that everybody in the chat room. So if you're in the chat room and you can see us, uh, let, let me know. Okay, good. Uh, people are getting it now. Okay. Um, yeah, so there's actually been a lot going on with Rob recently. Rob uh, just uh, spoke at the APMF, which is the Asian Pacific Messianic Fellowship. It was a virtual um, I've spoken there before. It, it was virtual this time, so he got to do it from the comfort of his own home. Uh, very nice. That um, was great. And and your dad and I participated in a, a two-and-a-half-hour Q&A session. And what was so awesome, like Caleb, I mentioned to you, is because it was virtual, it was through Zoom, you do the gallery view and you can see all these faces. Right, right. And I'm just going page after page after page, and I was just like, wow. Mm-hmm. It's like it, it was really humbling. It was great to see all these smiling faces and names. And now you already people. said it. You're going. You're going now to. You're doing a virtual thing for Yale. Is that right? No, for it's uh, Institute for Advanced Studies, which is at Princeton, Princeton which is sorry. tomorrow and Friday morning. So it's like I know. Early, I knew it was a ho- our time. I knew it was a hoity-toity yeah, uh, university. I'm and, really looking forward to it. It's just a. That's, it's just a, that's what Rob is. He's hoity-toity. It's, it's called a workshop. Uh, I think there's like 12, 12 people, and I was so I, I just wanted to go so bad because this is the place like Einstein had his office for like the last twenty five years of his life, like Institute Institute for Advanced Studies, and uh, I thought, man, this is really cool. It's like there's historical significance to this place, and and then they're like, oh, pandemic. We're not going, we're not doing it. Yeah. (laughs) Zoom only. I'm like, Oh, a thorn in the flesh. No, (laughs) I'm kidding. (laughs) Not even close. Uh, Okay. Well, uh, good luck on all that. And then, and then let's not, let's not forget. Let's not forget that Rob once again has two, not one, two papers at this year's society of biblical literature. What are you going to be presenting on? One is for the Masora section. One is for the, textual criticism in Hebrew Bible section. The Masora section is kind of connected to what I'm presenting this week at the workshop. Can I just, can I just, can, just for a second for everybody out there. Okay. Now, if you didn't understand anything that Rob just said, basically what he's saying is if you are an average person and want to go to sleep, <laughs> then these are the sessions for you. Now, now, if you are a geek among Bible geeks, I mean, and I mean like uh, the professor of professors, then this is for you. Yeah, these are geek, definite geek land. 
things. So, uh, uh, yeah. So with for I, the Masaurus section, yeah, like, uh, the, I, I got to say this. I, I just got it. Let me let me explain this a little bit. Now, I every every year I try to I try to you know I try to support my father and Rob who usually present in the Masaurus section. And every year I try to go and I try not only to listen to my Rob, my, my friend Rob and my dad, uh, you know, and, and their their papers. I try to go and listen to the to the entire section. And every year I remember why I can't sit through the entire se- this session. This is where Caleb goes to get a nap. Yeah, it, it is. It's it's whoosh, it's way out there. Anyway. OK, go ahead. No, that's it. So so for the Monsora section, I'm doing a paper related somewhat to the Aleppo Codex and the scribe of the of Aleppo Codex and a, another similar contemporaneous contemporaneous manuscript. So those are early 900s written in Tiberius Israel. So I'm looking at what can we learn about the scribes themselves? Because the scribes didn't write biographies like, hey, my name's da da da. I lived here. I studied here. They don't tell us that. So we got to look for clues in other things they write to learn about about them and what they believe what they valued um the other is for the textual criticism and it has to do with the hebrew and greek versions of deuteronomy 32 which is a uh, hot topic particularly because of deuteronomy 32 8 is where the masoretic text says according to the number of b'nai israel children of israel the Septuagint, the early Septuagint says the sons of God, and then it was later changed to the angels of God. And um, so there's a lot of uh, ink spilt <laughs> or websites made or videos made about, right. oh, the original reading was changed by the Masoretes, and oh, it has to do with uh, uh, the original uh, angels of, uh, you know, sons of God assigned to the different nations and stuff like that. And, and so I, uh, uh, am going to talk about that. Can't wait, man. Can't wait. Me neither. All right. Well, and you know me, I'll be like, Caleb, what did I get myself into? Yes, of course. Um, yeah, the pre- the preparation time for Rob in the hotel room is really a sight to behold. It is it's interesting. Pacing, anyway, okay, okay, pacing, yeah. sweating, throwing up in the toilet. No, I'm no. okay. Um, okay, so let's uh, let's move on. Um, a couple of things here. First of all, be a part of this conversation. Two five three four six five thirty two zero five. That's a message machine. You're not going to get a hold of us, so you can tell us whatever you want. Laugh, cry, scream, yell, whatever you want to do. Doesn't matter. We'll we'll listen to it. Uh, you can also shoot us an email. Write it down. Write down what you want to tell us. See Hag at TorahResource.com. See Hag at TorahResource.com. Go to Torah Resource for all sorts of great stuff, including articles and other things. And then uh, you can listen to archives of this show on MessiahMatters.com. And you can become a supporter of our work and a uh, executive producer if you'd like to. Uh, all of that is possible. Okay, and uh, finally, last but not least, perhaps the most important, don't forget to subscribe to this YouTube channel and press the like button. It helps us. I know it doesn't seem like it does, but it does. So help us out by doing so. Um, okay, I, now before we move on, I do want to say if, if, if Rob just blew your mind, and I mean blew your mind with his, with his expanding knowledge on the subjects of, of biblical 
stuffs. <laughs> <laughs> then come take a class from Rob Van Hoff at Tor Resource Institute. That's right. Right now you uh, are nice. Are, nice. Uh, thank you. Uh, yes, I, I do this. I do this for somewhat for a living. Um, if you <laughs> if you um, if you would like to, you can you can take uh, you can take a class from Rob. You can take a class from my father, Tim Hegg. And you can take a class from Ariel Berkowitz, or you can take a class from Andre Philippe. And actually, I was talking to Andre the other day. Andre is uh, doing a class on continued Hebrew reading. And what that is, is if you've taken Hebrew before, uh, then you can keep your skills up where they should be by uh, entering this class. It's a great class, and uh, there are some unbelievably skilled Hebrew readers in it. And that should not persuade you if you don't think that you're uh, if you don't think you're as, as strong as other people. Yeah. Yes. Um, but uh, yeah, you could take Greek. You could take Hebrew. Uh, if you have never taken Hebrew before, before my father is uh, doing beginning Hebrew one. So now's the time to sign up for it. You can go sign up and you can see a list of all of our classes at TorahResource.com. Go to TorahResource.com, hover over Institute and right down there in the drop in, down, it says 2021, 2022 um, fall quarter classes and you can click on that and you can see an entire list Ariel Berkowitz is doing some great classes uh he's doing uh, introduction to Isaiah 2 the book of Isaiah 2 he's doing world of the Tanakh um and then my father as always is doing some magnificent classes as well so everyone's uh got some great classes to uh partake in you can go and check them all out there and you don't have to uh you don't have to sign up to be part of a three-year program you can just take individual classes and to do that all you got to do is put that class in your cart and check out there's so much to be said about about adopting a an intense kind of routine according to a an a outside accountability structure, you know, these are 10 weeks, you know, some, some are on a longer semester, some, some schools, ours are roughly 10 weeks, three times a year. And then we add the summer session. I know Andre had a summer session this last summer, and then even an accelerated aside from his Hebrew ethnicity class. Um, So yeah. Even if you just take one class or if you do a commitment for a, a language is even more intense, right? Because you're, the learning curve is, is not as steep. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it can be like a fire hose, but you're committing to a whole year, which is essentially 30 weeks. Right. Um, but even a short term class, it's good because it just stirs you up. It stirs you up on so many levels and it, and it, it demands engagement, you know, with material. And we need that. We need to be spurred on like that. So uh, Brandon in the chat room asks what the cost is at the at a normal seminary where you would get um, where you would get a well at an average seminary where you're going to go for a degree and Torah Resource Institute does not give degrees. We give a three year certificate if you get through all three years. Otherwise, you just get um, you just get the knowledge. Um, at, a, at your normal seminary, you're going to pay anywhere from twelve to $1,300 per class. At uh, Torah Resource Institute, the most expensive class that we have is $285. And language classes are $190 per quarter. So uh, you're getting it at a fourth of the cost. Now, of course, books are going to be... a you know, yeah, more, you got you got to to the to the tuition, right? But yeah, we, we we I'm so grateful to all our supporters that permit this to function this way, right? Uh, you know, I've also I've often wondered though, and not that this is the place to talk about, it, but it's like, are we giving it away to 
easily, you know, cause I, I know this because I, you know, Caleb, you've done it. I've done it where you go out and you've had to pay top dollar for your education and you come away with like, you got to really want it. You know what I mean? To, 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 to commit not only the time and the attention and intensity that we're talking about, but also boom, to put uh, to financial to, to, yeah. to slap down $40,000. All you really, yeah, it's you a, really got to want it. You got to want it. Bad. It's all good. It's all good. You know, because you're, yep. it, like I said, we we can't say yes to everything in life. You know, you can't just say you got to you got to say no, and you got to say yes according to the priorities of God's kingdom and that, learning His word. Is that's a, the other is thing, a, though. That, you know, going to going to uh, a higher education. If you're going to put that on credit. That credit does not go away. If you die, your kids get to pay your student loans. So uh, that's why Torah Resource Institute has uh, tried very hard to keep costs low enough that people can actually pay. You can also get on payment plans. Payment plans are available right on the checkout page. Okay, let's jump in. I know we've been talking for a long time and haven't really gotten to the things that I'm sure people really want us to. However, oh, and the things that they really want us to get to is this. We've had several requests in the chat room for this. Messiah Matters wants to hear from you. Leave us a comment, a question or two. Call 253-465-3205. That's right. I want to know what that sound, I got to ask Sean what that little sound is that. Uh, okay. Uh, let's jump in. I and G Green wrote a comment on our last show, uh, on our last YouTube show. And it says this, something to consider. The promise of Messiah was passed down through the seed of Abraham. I think I have a problem with that statement, but let's keep going. Generation to generation until Messiah finally arrived. Actually, let's let's talk about that statement. Okay. Was the promise of the seed passed down through the Abrahamic seed? No. The promise of the seed was passed down through the scriptures and through the promise of God, which was given to uh, Chava, which was given to Eve in chapter 3 of, or actually it was given to the serpent. And actually... I heard uh, Dr. Uh, T.J. Betts last night say uh, that the, that God's declaration to the serpent that the seed would come and bruise the head was a declaration of war. I thought that was great. Anyway, um, so it's this declaration of war against the serpent and sin that the seed would come. Obviously, at that point, it's not passed down through the seed of Abraham. Now, I think what this person is saying is that the seed would come from the seed of Abraham, but the promise is not passed down through the seed. The promise is passed down through God and his word, right? Maybe I'm nitpicking. I apologize. But I I think, I don't know if this is a, the entire comment is a little bit perplexing in the way that it's worded. And so I'm not sure if this just comes from the theological position that is being put forward or if it's just a misstep in language. I, I don't know. So anyway, okay, let's keep going. Hence, Paul says neither circumcision or uncircumcision don't matter any longer. And that is not what Paul says. 
<laughs> Once again, uh, maybe I'm nitpicking, but the quote is, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. And I think that we're going to obviously disagree on what that means. Anyway, let's finish out the comment, then we'll go back and talk about it. The blessing and promise that through Abraham, all nations would be blessed. Okay, once again, we have some grammatical issues here because it says, Paul says neither circumcision or uncircumcision don't matter any longer, period. The blessing and promise that through Abraham, all nations would be blessed, period. So I don't know what that statement means. This may be covered that, later. Like period, is he typing out the word period, writing the word no, no, period? No, 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 there's a period there. Oh, okay, gotcha. So I don't understand I how just, that, I, I just don't understand. Anyway, so um, there's not really a question here. I think it's more of a attempted statement Okay, but I think that we just need to be clear here. No, the term circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing, does not mean that circumcision, the physical act of circumcision doesn't matter anymore. From not only from the scriptures themselves, but also from uh, non-canonical works of the first century, I believe that it has been well established by Various scholars, including my father, Tim Haig, but also Mark Nanos and uh, N.T. Wright, E.P. Sanders, James Dunn, others, that circumcision actually can refer to the, uh, the conversion process. And that is actually ethnicity changing in the first century, i.e., that is, Uncircumcision means not a part of ethnic Israel, becoming physically circumcised according to the regulations of the of whatever group you're being circumcised by makes you ethnically Jewish. Something that Paul says is impossible and doesn't work. And so the idea is conversion is nothing, not converting is nothing. What matters is keeping the commandments of God. And that po that po portion right there, keeping the commandments of God, is extremely important. Why? Because circumcision is a commandment of God. So obviously he can't be talking about the physical act of cutting away the foreskin from the, the member right, of it's, procreation. It's in group. Another way to put it, it's in-group and out-group mentality. Right. You're in if you're here, you're not in if you're there. My uh, Ontario presentations on Galatians gets into this. Which can be found at TorahResource.com. Yeah, and, and we know that the terms also from a basic level, the peritome and the acrobustia, those are the word for circumcision and, and foreskin, not really uncircumcision, really just means foreskin, are almost, can be understood almost like, uh, like motorcycle gang names. <laughs> One percenter, bro. <laughs> no, seriously, like the circumcision, like the guy, the bikers, they've got the leather jacket and says peritome, you know, and it's like, and then the other motorcycle gang of misfits they got the just kicker like on the bottom judea <laughs> they don't, the, yeah the others the misfits there's yeah and that and so the people in the circumcision group go yeah those guys are the foreskins they we don't they don't ride with us and then so what you have is you had the problem of people who are like oh i want to join that group i want to get their jacket i, Dude, I don't want to be yes. i don't want to be a foreskin so they try to join in and, and we know this is true for multiple reasons, but in Philippians specifically, Paul says, for, he uses, says, for we are the circumcision right. who put no confidence in the flesh. He's saying that we represent the true covenant, those who are in Messiah. It's not about this group it, it, pleasing some group to join their club. 
so you can shame outsiders and find honor and quote righteousness as being a member of this insider group. You know, it's the same issue with, you know, the washing of the hands, you know, these guys fast, but you guys don't fast, you know, or these guys wash their hands, but you guys don't. It's, it's that same kind of issue. And then people feel insecure about, Oh, does God love me? I think I need to go join you guys. So then I'm sure of myself, you know, trying to find identity in something other than Messiah's completed work. And Paul was, that's when the lion came out, man, because he was, he was going to defend these new believers, especially among the Gentiles from these uh, Jewish groups that were like bullies. Yep. And we see them today. Don't think that there aren't bully Orthodox Jews today that are going to oh, bully, bully Christians around, try to make Christians ashamed, try to make them feel like they don't know the Bible and make them feel like they're idolaters and that their only choice is to adopt the Noahide laws or to come under some rabbi. You know, they, they do it today. They do you know it today. You know, that reminds me of about seven years ago now. It was quite a long time ago. In fact, I think actually it was when I still had the, the yeah, anyway. Um, so I, seven or eight years ago, I got in an uh, online debate with somebody. I think it was his name was like the college rabbi or something like that. <laughs> That's just... Well, is he, that on your birth certificate? He would he would go to he would go to different universities, and uh, act as a rabbi to try to bring Jews that were on university campuses together to form groups. I mean, it, it, whatever. Okay, so um, <laughs> I I said to him at the time I had a fully kosher kitchen, and the reason why was because I was a pescatarian. There was no meat in my house, so there was no mixing of milk milk and meat. All of my all of my plates, all of my everything was milk. So any Orthodox Jew could have come into my house and eaten off of my plates because there was no meat. So anyway, um, I said to him, I said something like, oh, he got mad at me because I said that Jews were not as accepting as Christians. Because, you know, to get into the Jewish groups was very difficult, but Christianity always opened you with, you know, always welcomed you with open arms. He was very offended by that. And I said, okay, I tell you what, why don't you come over to my house for Arab Shabbat meal? I got a, you know, I got a Shomer kosher kitchen. I, you know, I light camels, candles. I'm, I'm, I'm Shomer Shabbos, you know, come on over. And then this turned into a debate between him and all of these Hasidic Orthodox Jews about how he couldn't enter my house and he wouldn't be able to drink any of the wine because if he turned his back, I might say a blessing over the wine to Jesus and all the, you know, and all these kind of stuff. And in the end of it, he basically said, I can't come over to your house. I wouldn't be able to do that. It's like, okay, so you're supposed to be more loving than the Christians. So so wait a minute. Wait, we just did this. I told you so. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Like, you know, you just proved my point. Uh, Anyway. So, yes. Oh, that's true. I I mean, mean, that kind of stuff happens a lot today. Yeah. Well, there's, you could have, it it doesn't have to be a Christian issue. You could have, I I know stories of Orthodox Jews and then marginally observant Jews, or not even observant Jews. And they'll say, look, you can eat at my house, but I can't come and eat at your house. Right. Right, and that's not even a Jew Gentile or Jew Christian thing. Right. That's a a Jew a Jew Jew. A Jew. <laughs> oh, dude, on point today. Okay, uh, Lee, is that a candy? Juju, yeah, Juju fruits. There's a Seinfeld episode about that, by the way. Um, okay, uh, Lee in the chat room says, "Off topic question, Rob. When is your handbook coming out on Jude? Juju? Oh, golly, on Juju? <laughs> uh, 
that's I I had hoped to have it by the end of August. Now it's going to be the end of August, twenty twenty two. I'm going to punt, no, I'm going to punt to the end of September. All right, we'll believe it when we see it. Okay, um, let's move on. Actually, should we just now? Let's we'll 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 okay. We'll wait because Lee in the chat room actually wrote in a question. We'll get to his in a few seconds. Paul writes and he says throughout Scripture, when we read the term "sons of men." The meaning typically typically refers to those who are unfaithful towards God or people who reject God. But this label is also applied to Ezekiel, where God calls him son of man. In Daniel, where he sees a vision of Yeshua, Yeshua is referred to as son of man, capital letters. Who or what is a son of man? <clears throat> Wait a minute. Is that, do we... So say that first part again. Yeah, so I think that there's a difference between between sons of men and son of man. So he says throughout scripture when we read the term sons of men, the meaning typically refers to those who are faithful who are unfaithful rather towards God or people who reject God. But this label is also applied to Ezekiel where and it's a different label. Where I, Okay, I would <clears throat> let, let me just pause on that first one. So I, I don't think, I think there could be times, like I think, you know, uh, Genesis 11, the tower which the sons of men had built. So I would agree that sometimes it could refer to people who have been rebellious, but it's, it's also in 1 Kings 8, when Solomon's prayer at the dedication, he says, you, you, O Adonai, here in heaven from your dwelling place, forgive and act and render each according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. I, I think it just, it just means humans, humans. And right. It's just a poetic, it's, it's poetic way of talking about humans. Okay. Um, I, I agree with you, but now let's move to son of man. Context is always important though. We right. always got to look at context. Okay. So now let's move to son of man. The, the 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 person in Daniel, you see a, a human in the heavenly court sitting on a throne. Or coming on the clouds, right? It's, coming it's, on yeah, the clouds, and was, right. And, he, and, he and was, in Revelation, so, you see that, yeah. But anyway, what does is, what is, uh, Jesus say? He says, that's me. I am yeah, he the says son that to of the man. high priest. Right. The, the high priest, he says, you will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven and he, he the high priest rips his garment and says we've heard enough is blasphemy why would he why would the high priest say this is blasphemy for yeshua saying that um but it's true it's also used at, just to address people ezekiel yeah like son of son of man now there is a difference ben adam is hebrew for an ezekiel but and Daniel chapter seven, of course, is in Aramaic. So there is a, not that it's a big difference. It's Barnash. It's a slightly different term. But I take it when Yeshua talks about the son of man, this, the son of man, that he's talking about himself, but he's saying, I am, I am this, this guy, you know, from Daniel seven. But the, but the interest okay. So back to, uh, back to uh, the high high priest who says that is blasphemy. Obviously, in the first century, there was some interpretation <clears throat> saying that that son of man was God. Well, that right. Let, let's find it. Um, yeah, Daniel seven, right? Is it seven fourteen? Yeah, yeah. Like well, it, here's one example: is, is Matthew twenty six, 
the high priest stood up and said to him, that is to Yeshua, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. This is the NASB. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I will tell you hereafter, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven, which brings Daniel 7 right into his face. It says, then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you now have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, he deserves death. So then we're fighting. We're, Yeshua knew that was going to happen. Right. But he can't lie. He's right. not going to, he's like, okay, you know, I don't want to go through this. <laughs> so I'll tell you what, I'll just stop teaching. I'm kind you guys. I'm kind of a representation of the Son of Man, maybe, if that's I'm better just, for you. I'm just a good rabbi from the first century. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, talk to, talk to Hillel, my teacher. You know, he's the one who taught me this stuff. No, Yeshua doesn't say any of that. Yeah, so um, oh, let's is, just let's just read in uh, Daniel seven thirteen. I just wondered. That's one of those moments in history, like probably one of the most gravity filled moments, where the pin drop, like between Yeshua saying this to the high priest, and then the high priest hatred and rage, just like tearing and tearing his garment. But Yeshua, you know, he knows. Well, this let's is, read it. Let's read it. Time. Let's read it in Daniel 7, uh, starting in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, there came with the clouds of the sky one like a son of man. And he came even to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. There was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Yeah. Baruch Hashem, all glory to Yeshua. Right so th there. the point the point is, is that in the first century, obviously the interpretation of this is that one like a son of man is God. Okay. Uh, yeah. We good, we good on that? We want to move on? What Was there any other points to his Nope, that was question his question. Or? I mean, he's in the chat yeah, room. So Hang on just a sec. Let's see what he says. What about the son of the man, meaning this, that son of man? Jesus was saying, I'm that son of man. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Off to, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's go back to, where are my show notes? Good gracious. I'm all over the place here. Um, okay. Sorry, not a period on that last set. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm trying to I'm trying to keep up with the uh with the chat room and my show notes and just imagine if I had the chat room on. Right oh good now. gracious. No, let's not imagine that. Let's let's actually move on to okay. Lee <laughs> says this. Not. Lee says this. He says, recently the topic of the and this is for you. You haven't heard this question yet, because I just found this in my inbox uh and I had passed over it. Recently, the topic of the Masoretic Text versus the Samaritan Pentateuch was raised. The accuracy of the Masoretic Text was challenged since it came after the Samaritan Pentateuch. Also, it was questioned whether the Masoretic Text was influenced by the time Israel slash Judah spent in captivity. This is because of the script change from Paleo-Hebrew to the Aramaic block style and vowel pointing. I've heard the, the text called a rabbinic text, which in one sense it is, but I think this is to paint a negative picture. 
One which adds doubt to believing its trustworthiness. Another point made in favor of the Samaritan Pentateuch is how the wording in the Septuagint and the Qumran scrolls are similar to it. Also, these three have the same verses in them that are missing in the Masoretic text. This appears to give the Samaritan Pentateuch more, supposedly, credibility. I've done a little research on this, but I'm limited to what the internet has to offer. I'm assuming that between you and Rob, that you guys might have some sound sources and be able to shed some light on this matter. How did the Masoretic text become the reliable text? I don't have a, oh, it's a different Lee. Sorry, Lee, thought it was you. Um, I don't have a lot of knowledge when it comes to this compared to Rob, although I've taken several classes on the formation of the Bible. Um, there's several things that I would say about the Samaritan Pentateuch and the reason for the Masoretic text being the, um, the go-to standardized text for, not standardized, but the standard text and reliable text that we see uh, being used by most people. Okay, and here, here's my reasoning. First of all, in Romans, uh, Paul says, what benefit then is it to be a Jew? And he says, much in every way, for they were, uh, they Unto were, them was entrusted, entrusted the oracles the of God. Oracles of God. Okay, so right there in the scriptures, the Jews are said to have have the uh, authority to hand down the scriptures, and they've done this very mir- miraculously. It really is a miracle. The uh, absolutely. The, if you see the the consistency of the Masoretic text from what we have today compared to what is uh, perhaps you could look at like the Dead Sea Scrolls and see the Dead Sea Scrolls and you compare the two, it is literally miraculous. Uh, God is the one who has preserved this. So my my uh, response would be first of all in Scripture it says that the Jews are the ones who are going to hand down the Torah, not the Samaritans. Second of all, we know that the Samaritans had some very interesting theologies, and uh, that the yeah, it's uh, it it doesn't seem as though they were entrusted to hand down the oracles of God. Okay, go ahead, Rob. What's your answer? Um, well, <clears throat> to build off first of your quote of Paul in Romans three. Uh, that parallels with what Yeshua tells the Samaritan woman in John chapter four, which is salvation is of the Yehudim, is of the Jews, right. not of the Samaritans. So the oracles of God given to the Jews is not given to the Samaritans. And But on textual terms, we know that the Samaritan Pentateuch has different expansions. The Samaritan Pentateuch has, it says Mount Gerizim is the place where God chose. Uh, the Ten Commandments in uh, the Samaritan Pentateuch have all this expansion uh, stuff that's that uh, pertains to Mount Gerizim and, and other things. And our earliest Samaritan Pentateuch is like 1100s. Like we have Masoretic texts that are way older than our earliest Samaritan Pentateuch. So if we had a Samaritan Pentateuch from the first century or from the first century B.C., that would be really great because we'd be able to study the text history of the Samaritan Pentateuch itself. But as it is, we can only go back. We can't even go back a thousand years and look at it. You know, um, it's better than our, you know, Enoch, Enoch we have and Jubilees are in uh, Ge'ez, which are only like 500 years old. So, so we get a little bit further back in time, but we're still not, 
or not even to the year 1000, you know, going back in time. Um, and so if, if someone's telling you that the Samaritan Pentateuch is older, there, there's so many problems with that. They clearly haven't actually read it. They're just reading other people's opinions and repeating it without actually investigating. Uh, at pertaining to Septuagint, um, it seems that in some cases, the Samaritans, I, I, this is my view, the Samaritans had a Masoretic text. They also had Septuagint text, and they modif- They kind of paste, cut and pasted and made their own Pentateuch. And they did that way later, you know, that, um, as to the point of whether the Masoretic text is, quote, rabbinic, it's independent. The, 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 the Masoretes were independent of the rabbis, and they weren't Karaites either. I know that some people <laughs> have made a living on that kind of claim. Uh, but no, no, they were neither. They were, they were scribes. And... Um, but uh, but yeah, Romans three, good good verse. All right, let's move on. That was a quick one. Michael writes in. Michael, he says this. He says I am struggling with the topic of communion, and I have a few questions. Oh, good. Oh, this is right up, Caleb. This so you right threw, you my... threw me a couple, and now now you get to do. This. That's right. I hope the authors of this video. By the way, this is uh this was left on a video that we did like four years ago, four or five years ago. So I. I didn't sit down and watch our own video again because can't do that. <laughs> I, I wasn't going to. Yeah. If I did that all the time, all I do is watch our videos and respond. Anyway, um, he says, I hope the authors of this video can give their feedback. I'll try. Number one, John six. Ah, yes. This is a controversial text to say the least. John six speech about body and blood is problematic. Is it though? Is it really problematic? Uh, because the standard evangelical explanation of it, that it is a figure for having faith in Christ, okay, simply does not fit the totality of what Jesus says. And also the usage of drinking blood, offensive to Jews, is unnecessary in that interpretation. Can this refer to communion, which will of course come later than John 6, but involves the elements mentioned and eating. Some say it can't because it's not the Last Supper, but there is no rule that Jesus can't speak of future events before they happen. Okay, let's stop right there. Uh, actually, let's finish out his question. Those who uh, stuck around after his offensive speech did uh, did learn ultimately what it meant in the communion interpretation. Okay. First of all, I think it is anachronistic at best to say the communion interpretation. You don't have the communion interpretation until much later. Now, modern day Christian scholars are going to say that's totally wrong. Uh, in fact, when I was doing all my research on um, on the, the Eucharist, one of the things that I was ultimately shocked by was the uh, amount of scholars, well-trained, extremely well-educated uh, scholars, Bible scholars, who said that as soon as the Last Supper happened, uh, if you just read a little bit on in Acts, every time it says breaking of bread, the breaking of bread, that means communion. In other words, this was an institution that took effect immediately and everybody was on board. Everybody knew exactly what was going on. Um, this not only reads into the text, but it does it neglects a significant amount of history that goes along with it. The history that goes along with it, uh, basically, and Andrew McGowan, who is a um, uh, 
I would I would consider Dr. McGowan to be a liberal scholar. Um, I would also consider Dr. McGowan to well, he is a Anglican priest, I believe. Um, maybe Anglican is not right. Anyway, um, he. So his theology is much different than mine. However, he has done extremely good work uh, in the field of Eucharistic studies. And uh, he has shown that throughout the first four centuries after Christ was on earth, uh, that communion was not a set understanding of the elements, that is bread and wine. So in his book, Ascetic Eucharist, he shows that different groups... I uh, used full meals, uh, and some of them, as it became more and more refined, um, it, uh, different groups used different things. So he shows that one group used water and cheese as opposed to bread and wine. He showed that other groups used things like meat or fish, um, all sorts of stuff. And so this idea of the elements of the Eucharist being um, being refined down into bread and wine that doesn't happen until much later, and um, ultimately, it shows that the idea of a Eucharist or of a communion in that sense was foreign to the first century believers. They associated it, I believe they associated it with Passover. Now, what I just said well, is... You're right. I mean, that's absolutely... That's inarguable. I mean, the Gospels make that... They anchor that, and so does Paul. So anyway, sorry. No, 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 no. That's that's good. Um, so when we talk about John mm-hmm. six, first of all, um, John six four says, and the Passover was near, or it was, you know, yeah, I think the Passover was near. So we, John sets us in the setting of the Passover. Now I know for all of the Hebrew rooters who are listening right now, Michael Root is totally out to lunch on this. Uh, John 6, 4 is absolutely legitimate. It's in every single manuscript early up until the 13th century. There's one manuscript that doesn't have it. It was a mistake from a scribe. I think every good Bible scholar has basically weighed in on, on this. It's, it's nonsense for rude to say that it's not in the Bible. And it shows that he has no clue at all when it comes to anything scholarly with that said. So uh, it's true that uh, John says that it's the Passover. So now he set us in the Passover mode. And I guess we'll just go back into it. The idea that there was a Passover Seder like the Jewish traditional Passover Seder today. And this isn't to knock anyone. I'm not trying to put anybody down. But if you go to a Messianic Jewish Passover Seder today... They're going to have a plate with all of the elements on it. They're going to have the afikomen. They're going to have, um, you know, they're going to tell you to rest on one one arm. And they're going to tell you that all this is tradition. There's going to be four cups. And each one of those cups has meaning. And Jesus drank the four cups and, uh, you know, all these, all these different things. None of that was the case in the first century. None of it. Uh, that That's all late tradition. And a lot of it was probably a response to or trying to incorporate what Jesus did and say, we had it first. Okay. And ours is better. And ours is better. Exactly. <laughs> Catholic. Do you have the, do you have our, <laughs> I don't even have our soundboard up right okay, now. I that's apologize. All right, that's all right. Um, so with all of that said, then, ours is the best religion. <laughs> yeah. And, and actually we've, we've, uh, we've actually seen, uh, you know, people recently have, and there are still scholars putting out, I don't know if I'd call them scholars, but 
Um, there are uh, groups putting out things, particularly Messianic groups, saying, oh, you know, these are the four cups that Jesus drank and all this kind of stuff. And it, it, it's just a neglect of, of reading the scholarly research that's been out there. Um, Dennis Smith did great work on this before he passed. And what Smith basically said was that, uh, and he does, he shows this, there's no doubt about it, that ultimately the Last Supper is based on the Roman Dapnon, the the banquet meal. And within the banquet meal, there was separation of different parts of those meals. And uh, the meal was one aspect of it. And that was usually started with a cup of wine that was mixed and then a breaking of bread or a, a incantation over the food. Um, and then you mean an invocation invocation did an incantation anyway, uh, invocation What's an incantation. Is Inca- that like, isn't that a word? <laughs> did I make up a new word? No, it's no incantation. Is that like a magical spell? I don't know. <laughs> incantation, a series of words said as a magical spell or charm. Yeah, that was right. Incantation. Okay, I was okay. right. I was right. So an incantation, okay, in, incantation over the food and usually to a deity, right now, once it, this is not saying that Jesus was doing something that was pagan. What the, what this is saying is that this was a the cultural way that you would uh, have a meal, and so then there was either a ceremonial or a uh, right. So so the question is what Caleb talk about the expectation. Let's say you were invited to such a, a date nod. What yeah. would you expect? If you if you already kind of had been to some, what what were some core things? Okay, I know what's going to happen tonight. This this and this is going to happen. Yeah, we know a couple of things. We for sure. Now they it wasn't like there was one set thing, but we know that they would have a meal time. Uh, there was usually a either a debate or a philosophical time, and we see this in John. Right, they get done with the meal, and what happens? Jesus has this speech for almost seven chapters. Right, so so this actually was part of a traditional date nod. Um, those two elements of the meal would be separated uh, with another cup of wine, which we see in Luke, by the way. Um, and, of course, uh, usually people were uh, seated in a triclinia, which was basically like a U-shape or a C-shape around the room. And then the food was brought in. And so when you see them dipping, it was communal bowls. That wasn't tradition. Um, that was like Passover tradition, that was Dapnon tradition. Um, and seating was very important. Whoever was hosting, the closer you were to the host, the more important you were. And so this actually has a lot of uh, a lot of implications when we see that Judas is actually sitting next to Jesus, right and dipping his hand in the same bowl as Jesus. It, it act, there's a lot there's a lot going on in these texts when we put it in the right setting. And so back to... It's it's interesting on this. I, I just pulled up the BDAG, which is the, the main Greek lexicon for early Christianity. So it's all the apostolic writings, but also like early writings. Right. And for Dapnon, they don't have a very good entry. They say it's a feast with a formal meal with guests. And then later it says a cultic meal such as the Passover. And it gives examples like from the Gospels, like Matthew 23, Mark 12, John. But I think in light of what you're saying, they really need to go back and. Yeah, Dennis Smith did a, a formidable work on this. It was. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, anyway, so 
All of this to say, now let's go back to Michael's uh, initial question. The, well, if I may, it yeah. means that because people might hear Dapnon and go, Caleb's talking about a Roman Dapnon. That doesn't sound right. Well, what he's saying is that there's this Greek word used in the Gospels that wasn't just the ordinary word for meal. Right. It, it was, was a, a special word, yeah. and that because people had, they used this word, it evoked certain expectations that set it up, made it, oh, this is different. This is different. This is like, a teach, there's going to be teaching, there's going to be, you know, uh, some sort of larger narrative in which the meaning of the meal is embedded, right? right. I mean, that's that's what's going on. Here. And meat was often served at the Dapnon. A lot of people didn't eat meat outside of the Dapnon. So ultimately, it's not like you did. Because it's expensive, right? Yeah, exactly. Of and, and, and it's not like you had to say, this is going to be a Dapnon. But if you had a formal meal, any kind of a ceremonial meal to any god or with any elements of worship of God, which everybody was, there was no such thing as like an atheist back then. Everybody believed in a God. So if there was any element of, of the worship of your God, whoever you are hosting it, then that was be considered a Dapnon. So whether you were a Jew or not, it didn't matter. <clears throat> it'd be like, it'd be like in uh, modern American culture. If you said, oh, we're going to have a black tie event. Well, we know what oh, a black right, we right, know what a right, black tie right. event is, right? It means that you're going to dress up. There's expectations of what black tie is. Probably kids are not invited. Um, you know, there's probably going to be some speeches, and um, and it's it, it doesn't mean that I'm celebrating some pagan ritual. It means it's that, for, but it's formal. It's formal it's, it's, and it's formal. And I know exactly what you're talking about. And it's so u- it's used twice in Revelation 19. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Exactly. That's the word for supper. And then in 1917, it says, uh, I saw the angel standing in the sun, cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God. Um, and then that's, but that's like, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders, flesh of mighty men. So um, th- that's different than the marriage feast, of course. But in both cases, these are like major meals right? where there's invitations, where there's call out, come, there's preparations. And yeah. All right. I, I'm interjecting a lot here. No, no, no. You're doing great. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. So all of this to say, now let's go back to, let's go back to Michael's question. He says, John six. Now remember, we're talking about the Passover and basically the Last Supper is not the only Dapnon. Basically, anytime the Jews get together to have a, me- a Passover meal, it's a Dapnon, essentially. Okay, so <clears throat> when when we see the breaking of bread, hang on just a sec. When we see the breaking of bread and we see the uh, the drinking of wine, first of all, the breaking of bread is can be said over the uh, over the entire meal but it's represented in the bread so this represents lechem right yeah. lechem right. and this represents the banquet portion of the meal when we see a, a second cup drank so we see in Luke there's two cups there's one before the meal and there's one after the meal that second cup separates the the eating portion of the meal from the second portion of the meal it's ceremonial in nature it is the ceremonial aspects of this meal whether or not you want to call those Jewish or whether or not you want to call them uh, Greek or Roman or whatever, it, that represents the, the ceremonial aspects of this meal. So when, in my opinion, 
when Yeshua comes and he says, and he breaks the bread and he has the cup and he says, do this in remembrance of me. And he gives bread out. And then after the meal, he drinks the cup and he says, in the same manner, do this in remembrance of me. Okay. Now I'm, he only says that once, but not, not the point. Okay. What's he doing? I think that he's saying do the entire meal ceremonial and the physical eating in remembrance of me. Now that included a, a sacrifice. So that's, that's, that should blow everyone's mind because anyone who tells you that Jesus didn't require sacrifice to himself, no, he does. Right when he says, do this in remembrance of me, that's requiring sacrifice to Yeshua. And the, the reason why is because in the, in the Exodus, he says, it says, and this shall be a memorial for you. In other words, you're supposed to do the Passover as a memorial. You're supposed to do it in remembrance unto yod heh unto yod heh And so when Yeshua says, do this in remembrance of me, he's talking about the Passover. Caleb, and, you got to publish that. I man. know, I know. Anyway, the point is, is that in he, he preempts it. In John 6, when he says, unless you eat my, uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood, he's talking about the sacrifice of the, of the uh, Passover. And ultimately, what is the representation of the of the sacrifice? It's all of that. It's the ceremonial aspects of the Passover, <clears throat> and it's also the meal aspect of the Passover, which is eating the lamb. The lamb is what gives you the 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 freedom from from slavery to sin. The blood is ultimately it's the life of Christ in you. the The life is in the blood. And so I don't think it's just a representation that now we're, we're free. As soon as you take that to communion, as soon as you say, oh, he instituted something totally new and it's all, it's all about communion now, now you're fishing for representation of what that means because he doesn't explain that. If you, if you attach it to the Passover, then it's, it, it's clear as day. Exactly. All of that just falls right into place. And, and, in the same, and in the same discourse, he says, I am the manna, I am the bread from heaven, which is right after the, that's right after yeah. the Exodus. So one is on one side of, of the Red Sea, yep. the other's right on the other in the wilderness, and he gives them the Sabbath and the manna at the same time. Yep. Um, and he's saying, I am the bread from heaven. And so Torah is the starting point if, if once we cut oh it has nothing to do with that then like caleb said you're fishing for yeah i mean you're just you got to make up something new now <laughs> right yeah actually we we my, if you unhitch yeah, my, as uh, andy stanley said my wife and i old testament my wife my wife and i were at starbucks having a uh, date last night and there was a lady sitting right next to us reading ff bruce she oh, fell, hey, did you talk to her? Yeah, she fell asleep while she was reading it, which I totally understand because F of Bruce, that's heavy reading, especially for a Starbucks. What uh, did you, you didn't chat with her? I did. Yeah, she oh. she, she goes to a Presbyterian church right down the road from, from where we live. Um, anyway, we were talking about, you know, the congregation that my wife and I helped start and how um, and how basically we're, we're what we're trying to do is we are not trying to be separate from the Christian church or leave the Christian church or anything like that. No, we are the Christian church. And what we want to do is we want to show people Christ in the festivals. So we celebrate the festivals and we celebrate the Sabbath. And what we do is we try to show how this all points to Christ. 
And this lady was just, I mean, she was like, yes, yes, yes. You know, and, and we had this whole conversation about how you can't understand the, the New Testament unless you understand the Torah first. Because all of these references that these people are making go back to, you know, they're attaching it all to the Torah and to the Tanakh. So anyway, I think that there, I mean, to me, it shows that there is an awakening within the Christian church that people are hungry to see not just the end of the story, but to understand its fullness because there it like, it's all, you know, you can look at the scriptures almost like God looks at time. It, you can see it all at once and it all works perfectly together. That's, that's our <clears throat> blessing and our privilege and honor at this time in history. But, and, and the books are there that it's all open, but right. People, not everybody's interested in reading, you know, they're busy pursuing other things, you know, and, and, but seeking the kingdom the like you were saying, having a Bible is a miracle, let alone what 50 plus translations in English, plus how much commentary, you know, we've talked about that before other, there's other languages that have maybe half the Bible in one translation, if, or maybe a book, if at all. And we in the English-speaking world, we have, you know, to whom much is given, much is expected. I mean, we, we've got a lot. We've got a lot of resources free and available to us that it's a matter of our individual hearts. Do we have a heart that seeks devo- daily devotion time with the Lord, seeks to grow in knowledge of the Word? And in order to do that, you got to say no to other stuff. You got to put your computer laptop away, put your phone away, you know, and spend time with the Lord and and seek become a become a child and learn, you know. There's you know, it's it the Bible is is uh definitely a miracle and it's full of the riches of God's kingdom. And he's just yeah. You know. Yep, yep, yep. All right, guys. It's been real. It's been fun. It's been real fun. Um, It's been fun real. I think that uh, what we're going to do is we're going to come back next week, have another show, but we need your help to do that. And so give us a call, 253-465-3205. It's 253-465-3205. Next week we will be in the middle. We'll be at the beginning of the seventh month, right? That's right. Between... Yom Trua and Yom Yeah, have a great Yom Trua. Maybe we'll talk about the festivals next week. And if you have questions about those, give us yeah, an email. Yeah, the fall festivals instead of the uh, Pesach. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Seahag uh, at TorahResource.com. It's Seahag at TorahResource.com. Don't forget, as the children, as the kids these days say, don't forget to smash that subscribe button and hit the like. Um, <laughs> and uh, bam. bam. Yeah, I can't find my, my outro music. All right, here we go. Um, we hope that this conversation has done at least one thing that is to glorify our great God and Savior Yeshua the Messiah why you know why because Messiah matters Messiah matters